Hello and welcome back. My name is Sue and this is another of our Learn with Sue Walk and Talk podcasts. And as you know, this is the place where we combine the science of emotions, positive psychology and neuroscience to help us be the best we can be. And many times on our podcast, we have the opportunity to talk to amazing people uh, in this space. And I feel very privileged, um, A, that she said yes, and B, that she's back home in Melbourne to have this conversation. So I am joined with the, by the amazing Michelle McQueen. Yay, <laughs> thank you, Sue. It's so nice to be back in Australia. <laughs> It is awesome, and I'm so pleased you're you're back. Hopefully, you had a good time, but I'm also really pleased you agreed to come on our Lomasu Walk and Talk podcast because you've been in the holistic positive psychology space for uh, quite a long time now. Many people will know your name; uh, they will know a lot of your work. Um, the work that you do that you share with other people, the work that you've done as far as your PhD um, and the space that you've been in for a period of time. But I would love to know if we can kick off. How do you see yourself? How do you explain yourself or identify yourself as a person? You're starting with the easy question first. Oh, my God, it's like an existential crisis right on the spot. Um, look, I've always, uh, most of the last decade, identified myself as a well-being teacher. Um, it seemed to be the easiest way to explain the mix of um, research and practice that I tended to do. I always love learning. Curiosity is one of my top via strengths. But everything I learn, I have to find a way to use straight away. And first and foremost, I was a practitioner in workplaces trying to figure out this stuff before I ever fell in love with the research. So, And I come from a long line of teachers. Uh, my mother was a teacher. My grandmother was a teacher. My great-grandmother was a teacher. Wow. So, of course, I spent most of my life swearing I'd never be a teacher. Um, (laughs) So they all think it's quite funny that, you know, in the end I've decided I was a teacher. More recently, though, on my way back to Australia, I went and walked for 10 days along part of the Camino de Santiago Trail, and I went with the question, who would I be if I wasn't in service to anybody else? Mm-hmm. And what I realized was as I walked with that question is, yes, I love, I love to teach, still love to teach, but in the heart of all of my teaching is actually uh, um, an unrealized artist, perhaps is the best way to describe mm-hmm. it. And I think most people who have seen any of our work know that it tends to be quite artistic or we, we care a lot about the design, about how it is shared is probably the best way to do it. So I'm busy right now exploring that inner artist and letting her loose and seeing how she blends with the teaching a bit more so um, I'm in transition I think Sue is the answer to your question (laughs) I love that I love that well I'm going to come back to the artist bit in a moment and your walk um just sort of going back if we will and I will say aesthetically um your material I can absolutely see that artist coming through so (laughs) thank you um it's interesting what you said about teacher because when I was a child my nan used to say she's going to be a teacher and I'm like you have got to be kidding (laughs) and I finally reconciled myself to the fact that maybe I am. <laughs> so just I had a little say, bit. Maybe grandma was right. <laughs> yeah, which is really annoying, but she was so lovely. So I kind of have to. Now. Um, just sort of thinking about, about that um, sort of time you've spent in that space of building the business, sharing knowledge. Um, what have been some of your key learnings about how to take the research and make it practical? Mm. 
Mm, I think that's such an important question. When I started, because again, I didn't come from a research background, I was just like, awesome, there's a science to how we can thrive in the workplace. It's all proven and I'll take it out to the world and share it. And I came from a marketing background originally. So is there any better label you can stamp on your work than proven, um, particularly when it comes to human behaviour? So I started with a lot of good intent and enthusiasm down that path when I first uh, graduated out of the Masters of Applied Positive psychology and the early days of my business and then came to understand of course as I became more of a researcher and not just a practitioner that good science is never proven <laughs> it's always unfolding we once thought the world was flat now we believe it's round who knows what it could be next um, and so how instead did I learn to sit with the complexity and the uncertainty of the science of human behavior while still improving the confidence and practices practically of this businesses who want clear and concrete answers about things. And so that for me definitely has been one of the biggest lessons that the science is not proven. We're super careful never to put proven on anything anymore, um, but to help ourselves and others sit with the unfolding nature of what we're all learning all of the time about human behaviour. So that was a big one. Um, I think the second one, certainly with wellbeing and in a workplace context where we like to see improvements, it means our business is getting better. Um, the second one is really, again, in the early days, we spoke along with lots of others about improving well-being, you know, use the science to help improve well-being in your workplace. Who wouldn't sign up for that, right? And then, of course, again, I think both some of what the science has learned over the last decade around hedonic adaption and um, our sort of set point ranges for well-being in that has raised a lot of questions around, well, does our well-being really improve and how much does it improve and how much actually is it ebbing and flowing around fairly set sort of levels. And we have now big population studies um, in Australia and other countries that have been done for more than a decade that actually do consistently suggest that for most of us, we have pretty healthy levels of well-being even at the outset, that that will go up and down about 10%, but doesn't tend, you know, very few of us consistently will start at a six and end up at an eight and then, you know, go on to a nine and, you know, if you're at the 10 out of 10, I'm starting to wonder if you're still connected to reality for very long. <laughs> so that, that sense of we've been really careful and changed our language a lot the last few years around how do we help you learn to care for your well-being at work rather than constantly chasing improvement. Um, and so that, that's been another really important lesson for us. And then I'm endlessly fascinated by behaviour change. So, you know, I love the science, but if we can't actually use it and use it with some consistency to good effect well you know <laughs> it's just interesting but not very useful so I'm back to the practitioner so I'm endlessly curious about all the things we're learning around behavior change um, through a systems lens uh, for people and so things like Professor BJ Fogg's you know tiny habits and tiny nudges work um, some of the systems work of, of Peter Senge and David Cooper Ryder and others and just how do you put that at people's fingertips in ways then they can connect the well-being science to the everyday behaviour change practices that give them a sense of confidence and capability to build towards the outcomes they want. So they're, for me, the three biggest ones. Yeah, and I think it's interesting because um, I've had a saying I use for years, you know it, do you do it? Yeah, yeah. To your point, you can know. And I remember Absolutely. working with someone once who could have told me everything there was to know about the science of emotions, 
But when I watch them in stressful situations, I'm like, you mm-hmm. so don't practice what you preach. <laughs> so, and to your point, I think for me, improving well-being is not necessarily what we're aiming for, but it is about having tools in your toolkit to handle adversity when it happens Absolutely. so that you can get out a little bit quicker. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think that's an important point. And it's interesting you say about Peter Senge because I just spent a week with him in Jakarta. Oh, he's amazing, <laughs> man, one of my favourite people to speak with. <laughs> So, uh, yeah. So um, that's obviously taken you as you sort of talked about the journey about what you've learned from a positive psychology research and science perspective. Where would you like to see it going? Another very good question. Um, I would like to see it becoming more intelligent and nuanced. I still think a lot of what we're doing is very is overly simplistic is perhaps the best way to describe it. Um, I still think we see in a lot of workplaces, we're stuck in our old three Fs, as we like to call them, of um, fruit, fruit, flu shots and fitness um, and tick that wellbeing box, we're all done. Um, I think that's starting to shift more to a, a more holistic view of mental and physical health and that those things are integrated, not separate from each other, which, you know, still drives me slightly crazy uh, sometimes in in our workplace approaches. But I still don't see lots of workplaces thinking about it through a systems lens. Um, We like to talk about it at the me level for individuals, the we for leaders and teams, and the us level for the whole workplaces. It's starting to move a bit more in that direction, but I still think there's a ton of work that needs to be done there. Um, And then at the moment um, in Australia, certainly, but also some other parts of the world, we're seeing the introduction of um, codes of practice, international standards, um, in some states' laws around the psychosocial safety in our workplaces and how our workplaces required to identify and manage risks that they might have. And I think this is a really interesting piece, you know, in one ways uh, it makes workplace wellbeing um, an absolute, not a nice to have because it's bringing out the stick requirement where legislation is being put in place in some um, in some systems. But then the other is we see that slipping back to a much more deficit risk management kind mm. of approach versus what I think has been really good about most of the wellbeing work is it's been more strength focused yeah, and building on. And yeah. so I think there's this really interesting both opportunity and integration to come. And we tend to try to think about this a bit as two sides of the same coin around, yes, how do we protect mental health? How do we protect from psychosocial risks, for example? But also, how do we promote well-being? <laughs> and how do we do that through that systems lens? And so I think there's a layer of complexity that we've not yet had to deal with in workplaces around this that is kind of staring us down the barrel. And I don't think anybody has clear answers to how that's all going to be navigated right now. But the way that gets figured out is going to shape well-being in our workplace for the next day. And I think it's interesting that that sort of psychological safety and psychosocial risks is being built in um, because in theory it's become a little bit of a buzzword, psychological yes. safety. Will you do a yes. psychological safety? Yes. And I kind of laughed to myself thinking this is what we've been doing for 20 yeah. years. <laughs> we've just got a different phrase. We're using Amy Edmondson's mm-hmm. term, but it's yeah. kind of been post-psych. Yeah, yeah. But I think to your point, it's interesting people are 
hopefully taking it seriously. And I, I'm like you, I hope it merges well, yeah. as opposed to people then getting put off because they then feel they're being hammered by it if they don't. Yeah. Um, and our other fear is that it moves it back into only a risk management conversation yeah. and not a strategic wellbeing conversation. And I think that would be, one, such a missed opportunity, and two, I think could wipe out a lot of the progress that we have seen workplaces making on this front. So we end back in a compliance tick the box exercise and not a genuine commitment to worker well-being. Yeah, I, I totally agree. So it'll be interesting to see how we Watch can this yeah. space. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so again, I, I consider you having a vast amount of knowledge and experience. So I would like to know what have been some of the highlights for you over the last sort of 10 to 15 years that you've been playing? We've well, been more than that, but I don't want to do too much. <laughs> in this space. Um, look, I think for me, I was super fortunate to be able to go and do my Masters of Applied Positive Psychology at the University of Pennsylvania with Dr. Marty Seligman, right at the time he was working on his perma wellbeing theory. Um, so that was an amazing time. We were literally sitting in class as he was writing the book and he'd bring in ideas and debate them with us. And we had debates in class about whether physical health should be added into the model or not added into the model and was accomplishment right in the model or not in the model. Um, so I think that shaped, right, so much of my thinking around wellbeing frameworks and the benefits of a multidimensional approach and what things might sit under which wellbeing factors in that PERMA model. And so that influenced then what I took out into workplaces in the early days of doing this work. And, and it also really, you know, people kept saying, well, we love all this theory, but where's the stuff? We want the stuff. <laughs> and what we realised over time, they wanted tools, they wanted posters to stick on the wall or cards to play with or but they wanted tangible actions um, that they could see and touch and read and you know have living around them so that for me was both uh, you know an amazing introduction to a well-being framework to be sitting in class and watching it be built and then right at that moment where it was so fresh to be out in workplaces and getting to collaborate with organizations to try and find those practical answers as to what workers need and it shaped then so much of what came. The second really amazing opportunity was at that time, um, Martin uh, Seligman was spending a lot of time here in Australia because Geelong Grammar were implementing a lot with teachers with him. The state of South Australia had made him their thinker in residence. And so I was getting to spend a lot of time with him in different situations because at the time I was the only person in Australia that had that master's of positive psychology. And so I got to sit with him in those early days and go, well, if there was one small thing you'd do in a workplace to improve well-being, what would it be? Because in those days I was all in the improved space, put the numbers up, and yeah. he was like, measure it. I'm like, awesome, where's the measure? He's like, that doesn't exist. Maybe you could create it. I'm like, I don't know how to create a measure. I'm not a researcher. But right at that time, Dr. Peggy Kern from the University of Melbourne now had moved from Marty's University in Philadelphia to Australia. And so I was also spending a lot of time with her. And it was pure coincidence because we were in the same places having these conversations right at that moment. The Peggy was like, well, I can figure out the measure if you can figure out a way to put it online and make it available to people. Yeah. And out of that, the Perma Wellbeing Survey was born, which has got more than 70,000 people around the world taking it. We've got a youth and a kids version coming out next year, which we're super excited about. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, that has shaped so much 
of the work that we've done and, and taught me so much about research and a love for the research that then informs practice every day. So that was the other one. The last bit that I was super fortunate, um, my organisational teacher in that master's was Dr David Cooper Ryder and David taught us about systems change and literally changed my life um, personally and professionally in that moment. I got to go on and do my PhD, which sued between us. I only did so I could spend more time with David. That's understandable. <laughs> How interesting, you know, a PhD itself is like, I miss you. I need a logical reason to keep talking to you. And so he's like, do your PhD with me. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> um, so that was amazing. Um, and we still get to, to play on things together today. Earlier this year, we did a three-day online summit for almost uh, 500 people with Harley Davidson and their community Milwaukee um, in the US around how to create a thriving community. And so I get to still do things with him like that and I pinch myself every time going, I can't believe I still get to hang out with you and do these <laughs> amazing things. So those for me have been the, the three really just fortunate, amazing things. I mean, we did the, the podcast for 250 episodes and talked to amazing people like yourselves and others. And so many of those conversations still shape the way I think and what I do every day. And again, I, you know, think back to some of those and the chance to connect the dots between different people's research that they don't always do. But because we were chatting to person after person, we could say to Amy Edmondson on psychological safety, can you have psychological safety without a growth mindset? And then we could say to Carol Dweck, can you have a growth mindset without self-compassion? Yeah. And we could say to Dr. Kristen Neff, can you have self-compassion without a growth mindset? So it was just that chance to bring amazing ideas together. And again, still influences every day what we practice. Yeah, I love that. That's awesome. And I agree. It's so nice. I think one of the things I love most of all is connecting with different people and then just seeing because many things do overlap. There's similar Absolutely. themes, there's connections. And I love it even when we run our diploma where a student will suddenly go, ah, oh, so this works because of the broad and build theory. Yeah. And this, this, <laughs> yes, awesome. Ooh, <laughs> integration, God forbid, because as we know, that's not how the academic world, no. um, you know, views success. And yet as practitioners, if you can't connect those dots, it gets very confusing very quickly. Absolutely. I agree. So then obviously you had a bit of a change and you disappeared off to uh, Toronto. Your business was still going, but you were physically somewhere else. Um, and you said then you just went and walked the Camino Trail. So tell us about that sort of what prompted um, the, the journey that you've been on in the last sort of three years. Yeah. So uh, my husband got a role uh, with one of the banks in Toronto and uh, we've always loved uh, traveling the world and have lived in New York and London and Sweden. So it wasn't completely out of context for us to take another leap and our kids were at an age where it was like the last trip to do that sort of thing together um, and where it wasn't going to be completely disruptive to their schooling so we <laughs> kind of seized it with both hands they're both snowboard mad so the chance to be near snow was also a big deal clincher from their end yep. <laughs> um, and a chance just to yeah in some ways step away from being so close to the business that our work has always been international but had a very strong Australian base to it um, because you know, this is where we started. And when I started the company just uh, almost 11 years ago now, it was just going to be me because I come out of managing big teams at big organisations like IBM and PricewaterhouseCoopers. I was like, I just want simple, 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 no people to manage nothing. And then, of course, you know, opportunities grew and, you know, the, you know, we saw ways that we could keep adding benefit into the world. And so more people joined and more people joined and more people joined and it seemed a bit weird that they were out in 
front of things that said Michelle McQuaid when they clearly were not Michelle McQuaid. <laughs> uh, wrong gender in some instances uh, and wrong age demographic, bless them. Um, and so we started this series of labs about uh, five years ago now. So we have our wellbeing lab and our leaders lab and our change lab because we found that people kept coming for these different bits of work. Some workplaces just want wellbeing. Others, it was the change, appreciative inquiry stuff. And then others, it was very much leadership. How do we lead from the top on this? So set it up. I found partners that we'd been working with to lead each of those labs. And I went, awesome. See what you can do with it. I'm here to coach and help. And I'm going to Canada. <laughs> and they have done an amazing job uh, while I was away, continuing to grow those three businesses um, in Australia and, and overseas. I did some bits of work over there. But with COVID, of course, everything went so much more online that provided I was willing to be up at some weird hours, um, I could still get in. But these days, I actually teach very little. Um, there are far better people than I <laughs> um, that do that in our team. And it freed me back a bit to that artist place of really designing content and learning experiences and crafting that into amazing ways and getting more into the research. I have learned I'm a bit of a, a data nerd, really. <laughs> and I think of that as art. Like often when I get a set of data to start analyzing, <laughs> I feel like Michelangelo, you know, he didn't know David was going to appear from the marble, but as he chipped away, and I feel like that every time I run a different analysis, it's like, oh, look at this picture appearing. So um, I was perhaps more of a data nerd than I imagined at the beginning of the journey. And then um, our eldest has finished year 12 and wanting to go to university back here in Australia. Um, our youngest is going into year seven and I missed Australia. It was never intended to be a, a lifetime choice to go to Canada. So we all moved back uh, a couple of months ago and loving being home. But on the way, I went and walked the Santiago. I felt like I needed a transition space. Yeah. And I wanted some time just for me, you know, with, with kids that are 12 and 18 um, and uh, a family, extended family that's had a lot of need for support. I needed some time that was just 10 days with no work, no children, no family, nothing to think about except what did I need in that moment. And it was just the most blissful thing I highly recommend. <laughs> And it was such a beautiful path to walk, to be out in nature, summer in Europe. It was almost like COVID had never happened um, this summer. People were out and about and interacting. And what's amazing about that journey, I did a self-guided walk by myself with nobody else. Um, but it's so, it's a beautiful example of how community can hold and support us. So it's signed all along the way with little scallop shells as the sign of the Camino de Santiago. And so I think twice I took out a map in 10 days to check I was on the right path, but everywhere you go, you're looking for the little scallop shell and it tells you the next bit to do. Um, you tie a scallop shell onto your backpack so people know you're on pilgrimage. And as you walk through the little towns in that, people shout out, Bon Camino, which means, you know, good pilgrimage. Yeah. And so you feel like cheered on the whole time you're going. And then even though I was walking alone, you still had that sense of community around you, particularly in the main parts of the trail. There was always somebody in eye distance, either in front or behind you, that's like, if I really get into problems here, you know, I can shout out and someone will assist. But there was enough space to not feel on top of each other. Mm -hmm. So it was a beautiful way to think about how do we what are the simple things we can do that create community and support for each other as we all walk our paths um, versus I think sometimes with best intentions, we create very complex ways of trying to help other people that rarely work very well for very long. 
Yeah. And it's interesting because um, obviously when I heard you'd, you'd been walking the track, I, I thought several people I know either after burnout or after grief or whatever you, that's, it's yeah. been the Camino. Um, yeah. So what was it for you and what did you gain from it? Yeah, so partly was the transition um, back into Australia and kids at certain ages and I'm turning 50 next year. And so, um, you know, my husband says I'm having a midlife crisis. I say I'm having a midlife awakening. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So some of that permission to actually just take time for self um, rather than feeling I'm responsible for supporting everybody else in my world all of the time. And, And partly was that, well, then if I'm not in service to everybody else, who am I without that Um, and so I wanted the space just to be able to walk with that question and figure out as I walk into this next decade of my life what what is important for me to be I was listening to a beautiful conversation with Jane Fonda the other day and she was talking about the intentionality of putting our oar in the water and what are we moving towards each day Um, and I think again uh, I don't think we always make space well in those transition moments to savor you know what's been to to mourn what you know will not be anymore as you transition to feel hopeful for what's ahead and I just I wanted some time to clear everything out to just honor all of the things that I was feeling and to make space for what might come next yeah I love that and I have to admit I do love it when Jane Fonda talks about the third act yes of what are we moving into you know yeah, things yeah. may not all be over yeah. um yeah I look at her going strong at 84 and I'm like um, yes baby that's where I'm headed that is driving in action yeah so you said obviously part of that awakening is to let out your inner artist so Where's the future for you? Oh, well, I think the, the part of the realisation was that, um, you know, I have always been an artist, but uh, as I was growing up, I came from a background with not a ton of money. And so financial security was very important for my um, mother. And so I had to get a real job and art was not a real job. It was not going to pay the bills. Mm-hmm. And partly, you know, and she wasn't wrong, I didn't have a level of mastery necessarily or talent to be a standout artist as a kid. You know, I, I dabbled in theatre and dance and did lots of things but you know I was no Kate Blanchett on the rise (laughs) and so you know you sort of put that away as childish dreams and I went into marketing and PR because at least again it it kept me next to creative people and processes and you know ended up in big companies where those things struggled to breathe a bit and then yeah (laughs) came into the well-being and what was interesting was you know all the things I'd found artistic outlets in the ways that I taught well-being um, to have that but I think what's different now is that full permission to go okay you are an artist so what does that give you the freedom to embrace and what do you want to say yes to intentionally and what might be things to walk away from and I think um, it was seeing it not as a job but actually as a life choice in terms of how I live, uh, what I invest time and energy and money in in the world. Um, And I don't know, again, maybe it's the coming to 50 part, maybe it's 10 years, you know, doing what I've done and ready for what comes next after that. You know, I think we travel those learning curves, which, you know, they often suggest sort of run for about seven to 10 years and then it's what's next. Um, For me, it's more space just to explore artistic expression in any form that takes my fancy without it having to be for work. (laughs) 
So right now I use a lot of my artistic outlet to teach wellbeing, but what I realised walking the Camino is it doesn't have to be that. Um, so there's been a bit of taking up of line dancing, some improvisation <laughs> classes. There could be some singing, I have to warn you, in the New Year, Sue, which won't be good for anybody, but it'll be very good for my heart. Uh, <laughs> and so it's it's prioritising the space and giving yeah. myself the permission that actually that is as important as my job and looking after my family and that I need things that um, feed and allow that inner artist to explore and be. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> and it's so funny you said those three things because um, I did line dancing. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah. I did an improv class a while yeah. In weeks, and I have to say, they they picked a monologue you had to do at the final performance, and they picked it based on what would stretch you out of your comfort zone. What and do? I don't often swear. <laughs> I had I had to do a monologue of pretending to be in an audience of a cinema where I'm not really watching the movie, but I'm thinking about my partner. Yeah. And I had to say rude words. <laughs> I had to say the word penis, which is <laughs> at the time I was like, oh my god, I can't say that in front of 102 people. <laughs> And uh, so I did the, I did the improv too. Um, and what was the third thing you said? Uh, singing. Singing. And I did singing. There you choral go. singing. And it was funny because I deliberately thought I'm going to do choral singing because you're yep. together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and we did rounds and all this and nice, it was great. Yep. So I was always singing with somebody else. And then on the last session they suddenly said, okay, uh, when I point to you, it's just you. Everyone else will shut yeah, up. Yeah. And I'm like, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> and to your point, I can stand on stage like you can in front of yeah. 10,000 people, no yeah. problem. But ask me to sing a line. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, kindred spirits, Sue. I always knew we were kindred spirits. So. Well, I was going to say we'll have to try our improv and Absolutely, our absolutely. <laughs> I'm looking forward to a good catch-up. <laughs> That's brilliant. That's brilliant. Well, I hope it, uh, it takes you in some interesting new directions. Um, and I think to your point, it's we we are privileged sometimes that we get to have that opportunity yeah. to stop, to think, to reset, yeah. um, and I hope you get joy from it. But my last question to you then is often in uh, positive psychology there's sort of we, we talk about maybe the more subjective, the hedonic, the, the yeah. pleasure, if you like, element, and then you've got the more psychological, the deeper, the richer, those sorts of things. Yeah. What do you do for your subjective well-being? What do you do for your psychological well-being? Uh, so, the, I mean, the subjective is all of the above in terms of the, the artistic outlets. Um, but also I'm a huge nature person. So one of the joys of being back in Melbourne is we're lucky enough to live about about five minutes walk from uh, a little inner city beach, which is no Sydney beach, so it's not Byron, I'm, you know, full, but it's water and there's a horizon and I can hear waves, which are, it's not a lake. And so, you know, after only having lakes, I'm back on the beach. I'm like, I'll take it, whatever form it comes. Um, so that is definitely my hedonic place. And I'm down there at least once a day, twice if I can get it, sometimes in the water, sometimes running along the beach, but out in nature uh, for me is definitely where so much joy comes from. Um, and then more in the eudaimonic sort of meaningful space I mean I think we're fortunate doing the work we do it's hard for it not to be meaningful um, every day if anything it's, it's keeping that balance so it doesn't become obsessively meaningful um, and keeping it in a healthy place um, friends um, I'm blessed and again had great friends in Toronto that looked after me um, the wonderful Maureen McKenna and Louisa Jewell and took me out for walks and kept me entertained and cared for um, and amazing friends to be back home with in Melbourne that's 
been part of the joy of just getting to hug the people that you've only seen on screen for so long. Um, and then family, that I, you know, have deep connections into family. I have a complicated family, um, but I love them dearly and finding ways to support and enjoy um, is definitely a big piece of the puzzle. And, you know, in the midst of that, I've got two kids, one about to turn 18 um, and leave me. So we're getting ready for all that transition. And the other one who, bless him, is um, 12 and a half. So he's still got a few good years of, um, you know, mothering in him. So (laughs) I'm mindful that my clock is running out on that front and trying to make the most of it. Yeah. Oh, I love that. And it's interesting you say clock running out because I just started um, listening while I'm on my beach walks to the 4,000 weeks or something. Oh, yes, yeah. Yep. And uh, and I've only listened to like the first chapter. I'm like, I've only got about 1,500 weeks left. This is terrible. <laughs> it's scary <laughs> when you think that? about it. In, I just come to one day at a time, Sue, put the oar in the water, make it a good one. <laughs> yeah. Well, I love it, and I love that you you know the science, but more importantly, you implement the the science, the research around testing those things and what's good for you from a subjective, hedonic, pleasurable, as well as what's that more eudaimonic and meaningful aspect. And I think we all know that we need aspects of that. You can have a really good day that's happy that has no meaning, and you can also have a really bad day that is hugely meaningful. Absolutely, um, yeah, hand in hand, right? <laughs> yeah. So um, I do have one more question, a very simple one, and I know this is a question you always like to to ask people on your podcast or something yeah. along these lines. Yeah. You've got a huge amount of experience of uh, books, etc. researchers. Give us your recommendation for the best books that have um, impacted you in this space. Oh, geez, that's a long list. Um, uh, for me, the first book ever was uh, Tell Ben Shahar's Happier. That was what introduced me to the science. I still think it's a pretty good summary um, of the basics of positive psychology, and I like it because it's a bit of a balance for a more academic perspective as well as a very practical perspective. And I think it stood the test of time pretty pretty well. Um, so I tend to always recommend people back to that. I love Sean Aker happiness advantage for a workplace one because again I think he does a beautiful job of blending the science and the practical applicable uh, kind of pieces to it Um, and then oh man there are so um, I think Kristen Ness um, new work on self-compassion some of her workbooks or things like that super helpful and practical for people to use Um, I love some of the ones that the Centre for Positive um, Organisational Scholarship at the University of Michigan, they put together some really great compilation ones um, with articles from all the different researchers that just cover so much ground. So when I'm getting much more in the academic or trying to give people a taste of sort of, you know, here are different things you could try. Um, I think Adam Grant's stuff is good. I still think give and take um, is the best of his. I think it just helps us think about our relationships and who we want to be at work. Um, in a really important way. I love Carol's growth mindset. I'm hoping she's going to do an update soon because although they recently updated the original book, it's still very much in that parenting space. There's a little bit in there at work, but I think there's so much interesting stuff she's been doing in workplaces, um, Microsoft and other organisations. I'm like, write more of it, please. <laughs> um, I'm a fan of Brene Brown's stuff. I, I, I actually, I, I like Dare to Lead. I actually think her, um, is it, uh, it's the wilderness one, Thriving in the Wilderness or something like that was the one a bit before there. Yeah. Um, I actually, I think for anybody trying to help lead out conversations or change in settings, um, I think that's an amazing book to um 
give us courage in some of the hardest moments of that. It's interesting we measure well-being in change champions and generally change champions of any kind, whether it's well-being or other things, have lower levels of well-being than the general population. Back to Mr Senge, because they're sitting in that creative tension he describes all the time between their hope of what they can see for the world and the reality of what is. Yeah. And so, again, I think um, that one from Brené is a great one about how you sit in that tension and um, not collapse in the middle of it or exhaust yourself. It's interesting. some of my favourites, but yeah. like, I could be here all day, Sue. <laughs> I was going to say, I've got a whole bookshelf just here. with. Yeah. All <laughs> it's like I need to get out the Kindle library and see what are the last ones I've been doing. Um, I think uh, sort of not science-based, but I'm a big fan of um, Glennon Doyle's Untamed. Oh, um, I love I think, that. Yeah, I think yeah. Um, she, and it's interesting, her podcast is more and more getting the science researchers we know and love on there, um, but yeah. I like it more as that sort of late person approach of just um, so much of what we go to for individual well-being I think she articulates in a very accessible way for people yeah thank you that's You're all welcome. and I'm very happy that I've read all of those so there I'm you go. Like, um, <laughs> you're all up to speed <laughs> which is good I was worried you're going to say something that I'd never heard of I'm like oh I'm behind yeah, no, <laughs> I, you know, I, it's interesting I, I think um, from a science perspective we are struggling a bit over the last five years I feel like we can't we had such a period of breakthrough where there were so many new ideas and a lot of what I pick up now I'm still loving but I find it's just uh re not a regurgitation and it's not a reframing because it doesn't go that far but it's a a repetition of the same themes just over and over again put together in different ways so it's not often at the moment I'm privileged to pick up something and read it and go oh my god this is a whole new way of thinking about it my world has changed so I I think that's part of where we are yeah Yeah, I had exactly the same conversation with Robert Biswasdina a couple of weeks ago um that it's nice because we're getting replication from Vietnamese students or people in Ghana or nurses in wherever, um, but we're not necessarily getting the new, which is fair enough, I suppose, where the new science breakthroughs come to really. Yeah, we had a lot of breakthrough, but I'm kind of excited to see when that next frontier of bigger ideas starts to come because I don't think we're anywhere close to having completed knowing what we need to know about all of this, but I feel like we've we're exhausting right now our current approach and thinking on it and uh, yeah I'm always curious where's that next breakthrough piece of thinking going to come from well I wish you'd have been in Iceland because um, <laughs> best speech I've ever done yeah, yeah. I, I usually think my presentations are okay yeah, but yeah. best speech I've ever done yeah. and it was about integrating systems from a more holistic perspective so and, that's, and that's what, what for I me like the last few years have been branching out from positive psychology exactly into other fields because I'm not sure that the next breakthrough is going to come out of positive psychology I, I'm with you I think it's going to come from an integration of ideas in different places and so yeah, um, yeah that's where I'm spending a lot of my time right now Oh, well, we'll be swimming in the same pool. I shall look forward forward to it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well, thank you so much, Michelle. I really appreciate you joining us. I should wrap it up because uh, our listeners have probably finished their walk on the beach by now. (laughs) (laughs) Not their luck. (laughs) (laughs) But thank you so much for joining us. And I wish you every success with your new um, shift of what you're doing. 
exploring your artistic tendencies in new ways, I think, is important. So, And welcome back to Australia. Thank you, Sue. What a great way to come home. (laughs) (laughs) So thank you, everybody, for listening to myself and Michelle having a uh, new opportunity to eavesdrop into what was probably a very personal conversation for us, and we forgot you're all listening. Um, But for more of these conversations, keep listening to the podcast. Or if you want to join us for more of our expert live sessions, our in conversations, our deep dives into different things, please consider becoming a member of our Lermasu membership community. Uh, jump on lermasu.com.au. Otherwise, we will see you next, next week on the Lermasu Walk and Talk podcast. Thanks, everyone. Bye.